All right, let's get it started. So, Jamilia, firstly, thank you so much for coming today. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you here. We're very honoured that you gave some time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us. Um, maybe just to start off with, could you introduce yourself, uh, give a little bit of your background, uh, what are you doing at the moment, and what brings you to a surgeon space? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so my background is, is primarily in law, uh, regulatory compliance attorney, uh, focus on tech and data for the past 15 years. As you can probably tell by my accent, or I like to say lack thereof, uh, <laughs> from the U.S., uh, originally from Connecticut, but I spent a large part of my uh, career outside of the U.S. Um, I've, I've worked in China, I've worked in Singapore, uh, now I'm in Dubai, um, and all of that work has been really building legal and compliance programs in-house uh, for big uh, Fortune 50 companies. And so last year I left that and uh, took a plunge into Web3 because it is the natural progression of where technology is heading and uh, started ByteBow, uh, which is an ecosystem uh, that creates legal resources and tools for, for lawyers and then also for Web3 businesses. Um, I'm also now a counsel for World of Women. It's pretty exciting times. They're building a lot of cool stuff for women in the space. And uh, I think, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up, all things legal and Web3. I love it. Very diverse there. Um, maybe even a bit more insight into ByteBow would be amazing. Cause I just had, just to let everyone know, I, I had the privilege of just briefly talking with Jamilia beforehand and it sounds very interesting. So could you get into a little bit more detail on that? Sure. ByteBow is, is really a, a solution to the problem I faced when I started, um, you know, leaving corporate and, and leaving Standard Chartered Bank and coming into the Web3 space. As a lawyer, there really were no resources. It was really tough to learn not just the technology, but also kind of try to dig up relevant case law, relevant, um, you know, regulations that would help clients. And so ByteBow really aims to not just service clients, but also to create a community for lawyers. So if there are any lawyers out there or any legal professionals that are looking for a home to really have uh, growing their network, mentorship, access to some best practices and templates, um, for agreements and things of that nature. That's what we're putting together. And uh, yeah, it's, it's early days, as I mentioned, but we're super excited and we're excited to also provide courses for lawyers. Uh, we do that. I myself have a boot camp um, where I, I put lawyers through a grueling six weeks of, um, you know, some lessons and then also uh, a pro bono case, which is hands on. And we roll up our sleeves and we work with an individual uh, Web3 business to help them get off the ground. That's a great summary. Um, I'm definitely going to be checking that out after we get done with this space. But for now, let's sort of pivot into this really rich area that you mentioned was worth discussing. I think that we could sum it up as how in this innovative industry can we have the compliance that both regulators and society just in general is going to demand with really extracting the potential innovation from this technology? Because what it seems to me is that there's this real sort of contrast between moving fast and breaking things in an open, decentralized manner and also being compliant and satisfying jurisdictional requirements and then actually onboarding people because it's within the bounds of the law. Um, if you could help unpack that for us, Jamilia, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's important to take things into perspective. If you look at any major technological advancement for society, it always has these growing pains. 
and you're always in a stage or, or a phase where it seems as though the technology is doing more bad than good. I mean, you look at the, the invention of the aircraft and progression of aviation, and you see in that, you know, starting all the way back with a commercial flight that first started off in, I think it was 1912 or 1914, um, you know, there was a lot of fear around what was created. Uh, there was a lot of excitement, but there was also a lot of fear. People could die, and people did die. Um, people died for decades, and, and still we have, you know, plane crashes, unfortunately. But there was a period of time where there was this huge learning curve about how to regulate and how to make aviation safe. And although it produced, you know, great results, I mean, obviously, you know, you want to go to Disney, you don't have to drive, um, you know, 24 hours. If you live in New England, like, like I did, you could just hop on a flight. Um, so there were great benefits, but there are also some, you know, some dark sides to aviation. I mean, think about aviation's impact on, on war and, um, you know, the, the way that um, people, people get around is, is one thing, but there are also some downsides. And so I think it's important to put in perspective that Web3 is an emerging technology and we're at, the, we're at the very fledgling parts of it. We're nowhere near mass adoption. We're just at sort of a, a research test and fail phase. And you're going to see a lot of failure. You're going to see some good, but you're going to see a lot of failure. And the hope is that we learn from it. I think that's a very logical way of looking at it. And it's, we feel like we can't draw parallels with the past because we're at this new frontier. But it's sort of arrogant in a way, isn't it? Not to think that there were these drastic technological challenges in the past that can really be learnt from and that sort of way of thinking can sort of shape how we're going to proceed in this industry. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I mean, it's, it's fun to say things like boomer and, you know, make fun of past generations and say like, Oh, what did they know? They were, you know, they're riding around with horses and carriages before the automobile and, you know, all these things. But if you can put yourself in that space and time, you probably could see that they were also, um, anxious about that new technology. And, um, you know, yeah, we're, we're just going to have to learn from the past and regulations will come. Some will be good, some will be bad, um, but we just have to kind of learn from it. So to, let, let's, let's go down that analogy path a bit more, drawing on the aeroplane and aviation industry. It would seem to me that, firstly, the novelty of it, I like that link, but there's also this inherent discrepancy between something like aviation that is by nature centralised, right? Like we don't have many airports in each city, nor would it make sense to, um, nor do we have many aeroplanes relative to people. Whereas to me, it seems like decentralization is, in terms of crypto at least, is really powered by open source software that is sort of giving people the capacity to be self-sovereign over a lot of aspects of their life and potentially disintermediate trusted intermediaries how do you think that tension sort of will play out going forward do you think that innovate i guess maybe a different way of putting it is do you think innovation wins uh do you think there's a nice harmonious place where both can function effectively oh innovation will always win innovation will always win because humanity has to progress we have to move forward um, it's funny, you look at you look at aviation and, you know, in our minds now, we think it's centralized. Um, 
but but really the rules are decentralized. I mean, for, for most people like you and I, you know, we catch a commercial flight, we book our tickets online, but there's still a percentage of the population that just charters a jet. Um, <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to do anything else or, or maybe you own your own aircraft. I mean, there's rules and regulations around that, but you still can do it in a decentralized manner. Now, the cost to do that has de- has increased. Right. I mean, that's only for a certain um, set of the population. And, and you probably could make the argument that with Web3, we are kind of seeing a bit of that. Right. We are kind of seeing these um, large conglomerate uh, Web3 platforms that are amassing a lot of wealth and are making the barriers to entry uh, a little bit higher um, for people who want to set up their own shop. And so now's the days that if, if you want to set up your own um, framework or platform, now's the time to do it. I'd, I'd like to see continuing innovation in Web3. And I think it's a rush to do that before other barriers pop up. I think that was really profound in terms of how you arrived at the conclusion that it's a fruitful time to really try and create your own ideas. Something we hear a lot in the space, but based upon that reasoning, it actually hit me personally in a bit of a different way. Do you think that there's going to be real challenges with respect to getting a coherent compliance regime globally? In fact, that was actually one of the early bitcoin bull cases with respect to because you know back when this technology was emerging and i'll and i'll i guess i'll preface this by using probably 2017 as that juncture of when it reached a certain mass that some of these discussions were a bit more marginalized but prior to that people were saying look there's this game theory that'll play out on an international level such that coherent compliance regimes will be quite challenging uh to me it sounds like you're perfectly placed to answer and get to the heart of that question yeah, you know, it's it's funny because um, in many industries, we don't have global regulations. Um, and there's there's always this this desire because Web3 is decentralized is to have some sort of global standard. But I, I, I don't I don't necessarily think it's it's um, it's necessary. I, I think we could still grow and still innovate having different uh, digital asset regimes around the world, as long as they're the same in spirit. So, like you look at you look at privacy regulations, right? So, if you wanted to take everyone's name who's in this space right now and their email address, I mean, you'd you'd have to get their consent to do that. Um, the bar is much higher in Europe because of GDPR, and the bar is much lower in the U.S. because of their foolishness. And much but, lower in uh, Australia too, by the way. Australia's got the oh, worst really? privacy laws in the world. Yeah, we have no right to privacy essentially at all. Um, so that's, yeah, that's pretty very, bad. Yeah, really bad. That's <laughs> why Australia is the, basically the capital of surveillance and anti-encryption and things like that. We're actually a yeah, world leader in lack of privacy. But sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no, that's but that's a great point though, right? And so that is why probably, I mean, certain things happen. Like you just said, certain things are more prevalent in Australia because of that. So like when you get this, uh, you know, discrepancy of, of what the motive and the objective is, then you see businesses flock to different places. Like you look at China. Um, anyone who's been in China would say it's probably closer to Australia in terms of that, right? I mean, they have general uh, national security laws relating to their own data for their own citizens. Um, But it's not based in individual rights. It's based in national security. So, um, you know, I guess the point is that businesses will go where the laws suit them 
um, the most and which which helps serve their their purpose. But I mean, you'll probably have a tier, right? You'll have a tier of like, oh, these are the crypto friendly places. We've got we've got UAE, um, we've got BVI, Cayman, um, Singapore is like on the fence. They're like, yes for some things, no for retail. Um, and you know, you probably have tier ones and tier twos and tier threes. Yeah, that, that's how naturally these regimes tend to play out. The one thing, if I was going to push back a little bit on terms of, and by the way, just to preface this, um, we can't really know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we're sort of guessing there's been, at least from America, a uh, pretty astounding lack of clarity over some of these issues. But here's what I want to push back on a little bit. With respect to finance, and um, money laundering, money laundering, counter-terrorist financing, stuff like that. These regimes are like very much led by international standards. So I don't want to bore everyone by getting into jargon here, but there's this organized, I feel bad calling it organization. I think there'd be a better term for it. But the FATF, which is the Financial Action Task Force, and they sort of really became prominent post 9-11. And they set these recommendations and standards that are to do with money laundering, uh, and terrorist financing and stuff like KYC and, and KYC stands for know your customer, by the way. And then those regulations have really sort of forced down people, well, it's countries throat. They don't really have much choice because there's so much influence uh, in that sphere. Don't you see something similar happening, at least with respect to DeFi? Oh, very interesting. Sure. I, I, I think that, um, you know, every country will set its own rules that if you want to play here, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think to your point, you know, certain countries uh, may say, you know, we're setting these rules because we care about consumer protection or because we care about money laundering or, or fraud. Um, but at the end of the day, they, you know, they will make the rules that, that fit with their agenda. Yeah. And the thing that is really stark, at least I'll speak from an Australian perspective again, uh, we have been very much pressured to have these same level of uh, AML uh, CTF laws as around the world. And we've actually been criticised. I think you might find this interesting, Jamelia. Our legal profession has been particularly criticised um, for our lack of compliance requirements as a designated gatekeeper profession with respect to um, financial reporting. And we've been the subject of... Um, quite a lot of scrutiny from the OECD and uh, different international bodies with respect to that stuff. So I guess what I'm getting at here is there's there's already the rails for, at least with respect to the financial elements of crypto, which is pretty large, um, sort of like G20 countries to have a really hard line stance on it. And I think that, I think at least personally, that's definitely what I, I think is coming um, because, man, they're so all over. Even things like ARS, which stands for Alternative Remittance Services, are just so heavily regulated, and they're probably the closest parallel to crypto payment rails, I would say. Yeah, and, and you think about, well, who stands to benefit from DeFi um, from a societal standpoint? You know, I, I, I think the gap is larger for countries like um, countries that are in Africa, uh, you look at Nigeria right now, and they're benefiting hugely from from DeFi and from having Web3 and blockchain technologies that focus on finance and banking. So it's everyone has a different starting point. Um, and I think it's just really cool to see it's like a race and, and different countries will take two steps forward and then three back. Um, I think 
the U.S. right now is really looking at SBF and and trying to think about what happened there and, and how do they learn from it? Well, that's the perfect segue. Let's get into that a little bit more. Uh, do you have any takes, legal opinions, just personal opinions about this whole fiasco? Oh, wow. I'm going to need a more narrow question than that. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Let me narrow it down firstly and let's give uh, Jamilia, the person, not the, not the legal expert, a chance yeah. to just discuss your thoughts around this whole fiasco. Yeah, it's, it's both um, disappointing and, and disgusting, I'd say. Um, you know, there are so many brilliant founders in Web3. There are so many, and, and I'm sure that there are some in this room right now that would have loved to have a fraction of the resources that he had and would have done so much better with that 1% um, than, than he had. And it's just really sad. And, you know, we talked about centralization of resources at the beginning of our of our space, but it's really sad to see that, um, you know, still in certain circles, people are not judged on the merits of what they're actually talking about. They're judged by who they know, what they look like, um, what circles they run in, and not on the substance of their business idea. And the due diligence just wasn't done. He was not held to the same standard that other people would be held to. It's actually just astounding, isn't it, that there wasn't better due diligence done by some of the best venture capital firms in the world, arguably, but somehow this stuff didn't get accounted for. They even had investors like Black BlackRock, which is the largest asset manager in the world. So it just it is truly astounding. But pivoting to your area of expertise, what do you think about this legally? Is he going to be held accountable? Are there going to be big changes? Is this like a is this a Lehman moment for crypto in terms of a bit of a before and after for the for how at least centralized exchanges are regulated? Or what do you reckon? Yeah, I think it's one of those um, large failures that it's necessary uh, for us to learn from and for us to get um, some data points to be able to better build that structure of regulations that's going to protect users and also protect the other supporting industries. Because when something like this happens, it doesn't just impact that one company, it impacts everyone who they were dealing with. Um, and so there was, a, there was a point made about... Um, you know, if if this were banking or if this were any other industry, that's that's not Web3. Um, there would have been tons more, uh, you know, financial reporting and, and other requirements, disclosure requirements that would have had to be uh, made that were not made in this case simply because it's in the Web3 space. And so, um, yeah, that's that's a gap. We've got to close that gap. And what's going to happen to him? I mean, I think if he's, you know, the investigation is still going on, right? But I would be pretty disappointed if I didn't see a really aggressive um, Department of Justice uh, investigation on this. Yeah, I think I think the investigation will definitely be forthcoming. The real question I have for you is, is are there going to be jurisdictional hurdles that prevent meaningful punishments? Uh, you know... I really think that um, it's it's so we, we like to craft these walls in our head um, that well if I if I go offshore nothing can happen to me um, and just totally think it's like a bubble. But the U.S. government is very good and has some of the best attorneys working in Department of Justice to be able to craft lovely arguments to be able to get U.S. citizens on the hook. 
um, even if they are operating businesses that are offshore, because we have um, extraterritorial laws and we have laws that catch you just by you using certain systems like uh, the SWIFT banking system and, and, you know, the mailing system. If you touch any of those in the course of doing something wrong that's totally unrelated, we can bring you back in. Uh, so I'd, I'd be shocked if if this didn't have any sort of U.S. Uh, law repercussions. I might just start a GoFundMe against it, actually. No. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I think, I think it's a question a lot of people have on their mind is, can, can he go to jail? For this, is this is will he be held liable? And and what are you thinking? So I know you've I know you've said there's going to be consequences. I'm fully with that. Does this man go to jail for what he did? I think it depends on what what they actually stick him with. I mean, in in the real world, right? I mean, people in the U.S. go to go to jail for stealing backpacks from Walmart or Target, right? So it's it's shocking to think that this person wouldn't go to jail for defrauding um, hundreds of thousands of people and um, doing a whole bunch of other things that, you know, right now are still being investigated. It's hard to say. It really is hard to say whether or not he's going to have personal liability and and be criminally liable. Um, One would hope that the attorneys are able to craft the arguments that, that meet those requirements, but it's hard to say. Let's unpack that. I think there's something really important there. Um, and I'll ask the question, what do you mean the difference between personally being liable versus being liable for a company? What does that mean? Yeah, so um, as, as a founder or a shareholder or director or officer uh, of a company, you know, there's, there's different types of liability. There are certain things that the company can do that are negligent, that harms consumers or customers um, that, you know, the company is liable for. Um, but when you look at the facts of how things play out, you could also, and I guess, you know, prosecution sometimes can make the argument that it wasn't just the company's wrongdoing, that it was directed by a certain person. Um, and that person stood to gain personally from what they did. And so there's, you know, depending on on what the exact charge is, there are ways to, um basically go after the person rather than just the company. I think it's a really important point. And it's, to be honest, one of the main reasons behind why companies exist. It's a very important notion and very well protected. The idea that you can have a company that is separate from the liability of the people that create it. What about the duties that you have as like a CEO or a director though? Do they have, are there duties that even if you're just acting in that capacity, say it's not for personal gain, but just say you're a donkey, and you let's just create a hypothetical scenario you lose 10 billion dollars by gambling it all on a trading prop firm not that anyone would do that uh what what could be the consequences from that if it wasn't for personal profit you just were a terrible ceo yeah so it varies from country to country and it also varies funny enough uh it depends on the type of entity that's created um so typically um entities that have limited liability Basically, you know, that means that this company is going to take the liability um, and that the directors or the officers have limited liability. Um, there, there are all different types of companies that can be created, whether it's, you know, um, 
PCs, like professional uh, companies and legal entities that are established. And sometimes these bad things even happen under foundations or charitable organizations. So if anybody is out there, you know, building a business in Web3 and says, oh, this, you know, it doesn't apply to me. We're only doing charitable stuff. Um, yes, it does apply <laughs> as well. So it's really important to look at what type of entity you're forming um, and under which jurisdiction and to look at those detailed laws about liability um, wherever you're operating. That makes so much sense. And I think it leads perfectly into this next question. What If I'm starting a project, I don't have any legal background. What do I do first? What do I need to look into? Like, do I just start doing everything straight away? Do I wait? Do I contact a lawyer? So, of course, I, I would always say um, <laughs> before you hire anyone, before you accept any money, um, before you get into any kind of transaction with another party, I would, I would think you want to do something that we call legal entity structuring. And you want to think about kind of the exercise that we just talked about, which is where does it make sense for me to incorporate? Where does it make sense for me to set up my business based upon, you know, where I see this business going? Also based upon where my co-founders or where my team resides. You know, in Web3, a lot of teams are international. So it does make sense to kind of think about where's the best place to set this up if you have uh, a major founder that's based in one country? Does it make sense to set it up there? And you also want to think about what the, what are the activities or the operations that this legal entity will perform. Right now, I think what's really popular in the space is whenever there's a minting that's going on, um, a lot of organizations, they want to look at BVI or Cayman Islands um, to take that as an option. So that's something that's, that's there for uh, compliance and, and tax considerations. And it just really depends on what what the company wants to do. But before anything else, for sure, definitely, please, please uh, get a lawyer before you start taking money from people. <laughs> and if you don't, what are the risks? Yeah, I mean, you, you've seen in Web3, there's there's just a lot of, um, unfortunately, people people are taken advantage of. Um, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally, whether it's NFT artists that create work and they're not paid properly, or they're not provided compensation from royalties. Um, it, it really just helps to establish what's the nature of the relationship, what happens before Mint, what happens after Mint, you know, two years down the road, are you getting paid, are you not? What happens if your artist decides to quit? Um, all of these things really should be hashed out very early on. I completely agree. But how compatible is that with innovation? and things moving quickly, low budgets. Is that, is that yeah, incredible? It, yeah, it's it's so funny because, um, you know, in this space, we, we do want to move quickly, right? And, and we want to build and we want to be creative. And a lot of times there's this discussion that, oh, that's not very Web3 of you. Have you heard that before? Somebody said that's not very Web3 of you. I hear it all the time when I'm telling people <laughs> where to pay tax. It's the big one. I, I go like, dude, you need to pay tax on that or incorporate. He's like, oh, don't worry, man. It's Web3. It's fine. <laughs> you know, once again, back to the earlier point that you made is like, we can't just throw away, you know, history, the, the history of technology. A lot of things have been happening before Web3, you know, um, and we should learn from that and we should use it. So, yeah, I mean, businesses don't have don't have money to start. I think, you know, right now there are a lot of lawyers that are looking to get into the space. 
Um, and then, you know, looking for the right fit, looking for someone who really wants to roll up their sleeves, do the work, is licensed, because we've had, I've seen some cases in the space where people are not licensed, but make sure they're licensed. Um, and then maybe you can negotiate out a deal where, you know, they're going to provide legal work and help you get set up, and then you're going to pay them later. I love that. And I think that just makes so much sense, doesn't it? Uh, in terms of how so much stuff in Web3 is crowdsourced. Well, why not crowdsource some uh, legal insight if you can? Just makes sense, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we were to go a bit further down this path of, okay, we're going to, I've decided I want to set up a Web3 entity, right? And I want to move quickly. And I know that I need some legal guidance. And I've decided that. I've looked into it. I've worked out where I'm going to establish my company. So I've, I've done these basic steps. But in saying that they're basic, by the way, they can take some time. They're not that simple. <laughs> but then what are the really big hurdles that the space as a whole faces? And I'll throw one out there. I think that anonymity around contracts uh, is very challenging for people who want to enforce legal obligations against another party. Do you see that as like... Do you view that as ex- existential threat in a way if people actually do want to operate anonymously? I don't really see how it can be done. Yeah. Um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. I, I completely agree, right? And so much I, of the space is prefaced on that. And it just, it, for us, it just doesn't make any sense when you, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to a hole in the wall where you don't see the chef, you don't see the cook, and just say, you know, give me a burger from this literal hole in the wall, right? I mean, nobody would eat that burger, right? So (laughs) you want to make sure that when you're getting into transactions in Web3, I mean, you need to know who the other party is, um, and it's for your own safety. And are there any if, ands, or buts? Like, is that just a prerequisite? I think it's a best practice. I mean, I, I think there's varying degrees of that. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with some projects, um, like so, for example, Below Board, uh, headed up by Aaron Haber, and, you know, they they, they want to be very Web3, and they are, and, and what they've built is great um, with the comedy club and the metaverse. And I think they also have this notion of anonymity in the space and being able to show up in this comedy club that's in virtual reality or in the metaverse. And, you know, you have your privacy to it to some extent. And so I think it really depends on the, on the project. I mean, for transactions and contracts, yeah, I, I, I think there's no real way to do things unless you kind of know who the other party is. But when you get to the business side, when you get to the product, it makes sense that some, some projects or some experiences, you want people to be able to um, maintain a bit of anonymity. Yeah, it makes complete sense. One thing that I've encountered a lot, right, with people when I've been working with businesses and projects within the space from a, uh, you know, a management decision-making perspective, the amount of times that people have asked me to do anonymous contracts, like to draft anonymous contract or to like create an anonymous contract where there's like a normal contract, right, but you sign anonymously or you potentially, I guess, just print your maybe even your Discord handle in the worst of circumstances, right? Do you find any value in that? Like, is there any utility that comes out of that process? I have never heard of this. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, people intuitively know, right, that contracts are important. So they understand that, but they also want to operate anonymously. So then what do you do? Well, let's have a contract and sign it with my pseudonymic name. 
Mm, interesting. Well, I mean, it, it's funny because um, in order to have a valid contract, right, like you have to prove that there was an offer and it was accepted. And so when you get to the fact that who is giving the offer and who is accepting, it's very difficult to make the argument that it's valid when you don't really know who the other side is. And then, I mean, I hate to get all like academic, but then there's this whole idea of like, well, are they a minor? Um, were they under some duress? I mean, were they of the right mind? You have no idea because you don't know who the person is. Um, I think it gets very tricky. I, I would say there's, I would say if, if that's a practice, then maybe steer away from it um, if, if possible. Yeah. That's been my advice as well. Uh, but I think a lot of people really don't want to hear that advice. And I'm sure within this Discord, <laughs> there's plenty of people who have, heaps of people, well, not Discord, sorry. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a bit tired, it would seem. But within this space, there's plenty of people that would have worked on a project uh, in some capacity without ever sharing their name and being paid for this and probably have done this regularly, right? Uh, I think the number would be quite, quite astounding, to be honest. Um, in fact, from what I've seen, it's the main way that this nft space is currently constructed is operating now i'm sure that's different when you have incorporated entities that are you know th th that's very different to a lot of these startup yeah. kind of I, I don't know how to sort of declassify these two different areas but i think you get the distinction i'm trying to make it's everywhere and the, from what i see so much of the space really relies on it i think you're absolutely right you know there's this new business stage this startup phase where things are a bit more relaxed and people are trying to be very, very Web3. But then as the zeros increase on the amount in your wallet, <laughs> you start to realize, hey, I don't want to lose this. I, I don't want, you know, I mean, you start thinking things, right? You start thinking like, what if this wallet gets hacked? Maybe I should get insurance. Wait, but if I get insurance, I have to have a legal entity. Oh, I have to reveal my name. Oh, I get it. So it, you're right. It does force you into, back into this whole societal norm of these legal structures and this web two-ness um, that exists, but it's, it's there to protect your business. And what if I was to say that it's not there to protect our business. It's here to, you know, let's, let's do the crypto argument. It's here to protect yep. the global elite and we're not benefiting from this. The laws aren't fair. They don't protect us. Do you agree with that or not really? You know, I, I think there there are some aspects of that argument that are that could be right, right? I think there are some aspects of this whole idea of the system versus us. Um, but I think there's a way to play by the rules and to still win. Um, you just have to be creative. And um, we talk about disruption a lot and... There's a lot of disruptive innovation that's coming out of Web3 that if these founders can just hold off and not be bought, uh, not be acquired, uh, don't take the money just yet, <laughs> remain independent, um, then we'll be able to see a bit more of that decentralization and the system will become less and less. But I think what happens is that people make something that's great, it's working, it's pretty cool. It's got a lot of traction. And then you get a tap on the shoulder from like Meta, who's like, hey, here's five billion. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, <laughs> so it, it's 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 yes and no, I think, to your point. Yeah, I think very fair, well-rounded answer. Um, I think I'll just 
pose you with one really sort of uh, broad question without getting too into the reads here. Do you think the current regulatory and legal regime broadly globally, it varies depending upon jurisdiction and that just is a fancy way of saying wherever you are in the world. Do you think that it is going to be able to mesh with crypto? Like, is that a match that actually works or do things have to be fundamentally uh, rethink and rethought? So, and a clear example is the securities laws in America, right? They call it the Howey test. And was, I think it was, um, don't quote me here, but I want to say it was established sometime around the 1930s. So the applicability of superimposing a test like that, that was always at the best of times poorly defined upon, you know, DeFi uh, coins and NFTs seems to me like we might, this might just not work. Yeah, America America needs a reset. Um, and I, I feel okay saying that being American um, and, you know, witnessing from abroad, of course, some of the really difficult political stuff that's going on and the inability to push through legislation that makes sense and that would ultimately help society. So um, this whole idea of what is a digital asset um, in the U.S. still seem to be struggling with it a little bit in terms of applicability. So um, we have, you know, like a whole plethora of different regulations that would govern different as- asset properties, um, asset classes, but the definition of digital asset will be different in each one. And so that's just systemic. That's the way that the U.S. government is built. And so how do you, even within one country, that, that one country, which is so fragmented on, on the legal side, how do you create something that works for everyone? It's, it's really tough to say. And then when you take it out of that and you look at all of the different countries in the world, um, you know, coming to a common definition about a digital asset, how it's to be regulated, um, what works, what doesn't, I think it remains to be seen how, how they're going to do it. And I think for crypto, um, we're all just kind of waiting to see how things will how things will play out and who the winners will be and who the losers will be. Are you optimistic overall? And 10-8, by the way, I'll throw to you after this question, but I sometimes think that they're going to be heavy-handed and the legislation won't really be appropriately adapted to protect people but also facilitate this industry growing. I'm, I'm optimistic. I, <laughs> I'm optimistic because, let's see why. Why am I optimistic? Um because I've seen so many things that basically have good, but sometimes they're painted bad. And here's a very controversial remark. Um, for, for decades, the use of marijuana in the U.S. and being in possession of it was illegal. Um, but you see many states now are, you know, first we went from no marijuana, then we went to medical, then we went to, oh, okay. You know, and I haven't, I haven't been back to the U.S. in like four years, so, so. Um, but as I understand, it's a lot more, um, it's, it's used a lot more recreationally now. And so I, I think, yeah, you're going to have a period of time where there's this very slow um, acceptance of, of crypto. But I think ultimately the innovation wins and the benefits win over regulation. It's just a really slow path. I, I really love that take. And I hope you're right. I think I do agree, right? The only question for me more so is timeline. Does it win now? Does it win in five years? Or do they potentially pass some archaic legislation that sets us back 10 years and then the real value of this technology sort of becomes discovered again later on? Like I guess an analogy, I don't particularly like it, but it sort of works, is psychedelics, right? 
there was so much promise around them in the 1960s and all these incredible things. And then research got completely frozen for 40 years because of political ends. Could something similar happen with crypto? It could for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, so, so many things in history, when you look back and you look at the timelines, you're like, hey, man, that took 15 years to even get <laughs> to this point. Are we even going to see the point where it's, I mean, that's a really good point. We might be, you know, 20, 30 years from now. And then it's like, hey, we're finally getting, um, you know, my Bank of America or, or whatever. Um, what is it? The Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Oh, we're, you know, we're totally integrated with with all different blockchains now. Um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, it's definitely an option, right? It's a, it's a non-zero probability. Um, 10 eight. Let's throw to you, Matt. You've been waiting very patiently there with your hand up. I apologize for being such a you know, talkative person. No. I mean, what's fantastic is you had asked uh, a couple of my questions already, um, uh, especially around you know how we see the legal space and regulations developing um, for Web3, right? Because you really can't just apply the same frameworks you have currently and expect it to work. Um, so, you know, going with that train of thought, uh, um, w- uh, just a question in terms of where you see um, regulations actually forming well uh, in, in, in a manner that supports innovation. I know you're based out of Dubai, uh, so am I, and uh, personally I can see they're doing a lot. Um, so do you think places like Dubai and possibly other countries become the leaders and other countries try and replicate uh, the legal framework or the ways of working essentially? That's a really good question. Um, and yeah, shout out to everybody based in Dubai. It's great, great to know you're based here as well. <laughs> you know, I, I think Dubai is doing a good job. And I, I hesitate to say that because I'd hate like, you know, six months from now, you guys come back and be like, Jamilia, you told us it was great. And we got in. It, was, it wasn't what we thought. Um, but I think it's taking a very uh, pragmatic approach about what to regulate and when. And so um, a couple of months ago, it, um, you know, started with a more detailed approach to how to market digital assets um, based in consumer protection. So basically, you know, advertising and marketing of digital assets, what you can and can't do. And I think that's like low hanging fruit, right? Because we all know that you can't um, have a commercial about cigarettes or alcohol and say, hey, kitties, you know, try this out. I mean, it just, it's just logical, right? So same thing for digital assets. You can't market it in a way that would harm people. Um, and so I thought that was smart, right? I mean, we don't have to boil the ocean. We can just start with what makes sense. So I think Dubai is ahead of the game in that. They seem to be going in a slow and pragmatic and practical way. Um, the general framework is there for licensing and they're slowly getting into it. But I'd also say that Singapore, you know, Singapore gets a lot of flack because they're like the best in regulating everything, um, meaning that sometimes they can overregulate. but at least they're trying, right? I mean, at least they're coming out and saying, this is what we stand for. This is what you can do. And this is what you can't do. Now, whether or not businesses decide to go there, that's a different question. But at least they are being clear and transparent about what is allowed and what is not. I think when you get to the U.S., like we said, we look at it, I, I just don't think it is there yet. Um, it's not really being a leader in developing the framework. So 
I'd have to say, um, you know, Dubai and, and Singapore right now, at least there's clarity and at least it's it's something that you can actually examine. Yeah, because I was um, speaking to uh, one of the regulators in Abu Dhabi and uh, they were mentioning about how stringent the Abu Dhabi regulations are so much that, you know, if uh, people end up complying with UAE regulations, they sort of de facto comply with regulations across the world, which was quite interesting because then, you know, that's a real use case for people to set up shop uh, in the UAE. And I guess that's what they're targeting, uh, similar to Singapore. So now it's uh, it's good to get your take on that because that's uh, something I was, you know, really thinking about. Uh, thank you, Jolie. Yeah, thank you. Great question. So if anyone else wants to come up and ask any questions, definitely feel free. Uh, it's a very special resource that we have tonight, so make the most out of it. Uh, also, I'll just ask you, Jamili, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to zone back in on? Not necessarily. I mean, I think I think this whole idea that we're just kind of right now at a blip in the large and the longer journey of Web3 evolution, and we shouldn't be discouraged. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I think it was like six months ago when um, NASA was able to have that zoomed out picture of the galaxies and we realized we were just like a speck within a speck. <laughs> I think we're kind of like that with Web3 right now. Like we're just a, a point on a very long line and hopefully we'll get to see where this line leads and we'll get to see a lot of the benefits from it. But we just, we just have to be patient. I love it. It's a, and I love your optimism too. I think it's very easy and probably just the general zeitgeist of the space to be quite critical of the potential for regulation. And I think there's some merit when people go down that path, but there's also a lot of nonsense baked in there. So I feel like you're very balanced, but also adopting an optimistic take, which is probably needed right now with everything around SBF and what we've seen with Three Arrows Capital and all these CFI platforms, really. It's just been a horrendous run. Yeah, yeah I mean, people... Um, no, go ahead, Timmy. To on, um, you know, in terms of that, the way I see it, right, it's about uh, innovation within regulation because regulation is going to come in uh, no matter what. So it's about seeing how you can innovate in that uh, structure. Uh, and that actually brings me to a question. Um, Based on, you know, your analysis and what you've read and what you know, uh, Jamelia, um, have you seen regulation contribute to positive innovation, uh, let's say, you know, through the past 10, 15 years that we can then safely say that, yes, uh, that will sort of be the way for Web3 as well? Oh, yeah, that's that's a great question. And I like how you how you kind of prefaced it as innovation that's within the regulation, because one of my biggest gripes with the U.S. government <laughs> sound like I'm anti-U.S., but I'm not, um, <laughs> is that a lot of our political leaders are um, from another generation. They're you know, they're they're very old. They've been in um, their their seat for decades. Um, but one tool that we've seen that works really well are task forces, task forces that are crossed between industry, academia, government, um, you can even have special interests. Those task forces that come together from all of these different perspectives with one aim, which is to research and to look at the numbers objectively about what 
good looks like and then come out with a solution. So the task force should always have an end goal, which is to create a report or to um, come up with a, re a regulatory framework or some kind of solution. Those have been really helpful. And it's been proven time and time again. Um, I think the U.S. just struggles with getting the, the funding for the task force through. But um, we, we don't need to wait for government to create those, right? I mean, um, within Web3, there could be the creation of a task force to kind of examine that stuff. I feel like a lot of people would just would have been very uncomfortable with the notion of a Web3 task force, right? Depending upon <laughs> people's reasons for coming to crypto. Uh, and could I push back a little bit? I would argue that a lot of these uh, sort of cooperative organizations with various stakeholders, their purpose is not always about creating the best environment for everyone, right? Generally, they're you know, power has motives that want to be served. And I would argue a lot of that is seen with respect to financial legislation, like the Financial Action Task Force. So much of that was about uh, America's surveillance, right? And making sure that they had a monopoly over the financial system, being able to freeze assets of their enemies, uh, see everyone moving money. To me, that's very politically motivated. Yeah, that's, that's really true. And I, I think it's about the goal of the task force, um, and it, the transparency in the goal of the task force too, right? We may say it's for, oh, it's to protect the data. But no, it's it's to surveil the data um, and, and people as well. So yeah, you're, you're spot on. With, um, so you brought up an interesting point as well um, in terms of task force. Uh, on the other hand, you also have the way we've been operating for a while, which is let's call it self-regulation, right? Um, and seeing what, you know, CZ has been doing, uh, the fallout of FTX, there's been a lot of push to have effective self-regulation before the regulators coming, uh, come in hard. So you have something to show to them that, yes, we are regulating ourselves and you don't need to be worried. Um, to me, it, it's sort of like, yes, but that's a, it's a stopgap measure, uh, self-regulation, uh, before the real regulations come in. Uh, are those uh, the thoughts that you share or, or where do you see self-regulation uh, going? Yeah, I, I think self-regulation is at best a sort of a, a utopian kind of uh, vision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when there are billions or trillions of dollars at stake and, and so much power that's at, at stake, it's really difficult to trust an individual or an organization to self-regulate in the way that they should. And we've seen that, right? I mean, we've, we've just seen that um, with SBF and, and also with others. So there always has to be um, some, some kind of regulation, um, whether it's minimal or whether it's just right, but there always has to be some sort of um, governance over those sorts of, those sorts of powers. Okay, yeah, uh, definitely. Well, thank you for that. Um, I, I personally as well didn't think uh, it was going to be too effective. But I think what is important for the regulators to see is that we're not just running wild. Uh, the bigger you know, players uh, are not running wild and they are trying to look out for the best interests of the consumers, right? Uh, and as long as that is there, then hopefully there is a sort of um, a soft line approach um and more collaboration with the industry players um so yeah i've got to push back on that a little bit 
Um, mm-hmm. I think I think there's a premise embedded in there that is worth rejecting. I would say that the majority of legislation and oversight isn't to protect people's best interests. I would argue that politics and regulation is necessarily a game about power. And I'm not even doing this to cast judgment or talk critically. It's just a nature of the world and societies, right? And the majority of these decisions aren't made in the best interest of consumers, especially with respect to protection. There's never been a principle in terms of financial law that has been about proactively. And in test, I'd like to hear some people's ideas on this, right? I can't really think of many financial legal doctrines that came about proactively to protect people. They all came about retrospectively. It's almost like they let things blow up, like they let things happen and then they come and fix it up. So just to be more specific, I think that the a lot of this perceived benefit from regulation might not be too effective because the purpose of protecting consumers isn't what they're actually trying to do. They're trying to consolidate power and facilitate capitalism, really. I'd have to. I'd have to say, when you, when you look at financial regulations, there's probably some truth to that. Um, but regulations in general, I mean, I think you know. I mean, obviously, you can think of like a whole bunch, like food and safety, like car seats for for children and and things like that. That 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 makes sense. But I think, yeah, when you when you get to points of finance, banking, money. Um, it does appear that it is the main goal is centralization, um, and that's the system that's been in place. Yeah, I think there's such a difference between regulations concerning food and safe car travel compared to what they're thinking about with respect to commercial law and securities law. They're coming at it from such different perspectives, which is what I'm particularly concerned about, especially with respect to stuff like KYC AML. Like that, sorry, once again, I'll say the full name, Know Your Customer, Anti-Money Laundering. I think that was so clearly, as you even said before, Jamilia, about surveillance like and, and control through surveillance. And I, I think that they're going to potentially lick their lips with what comes along with uh, cryptographic technology in terms of CBDCs and stuff like that to really double down on those use cases for themselves. I was pausing. Tenny, did you have something to say? I thought he had something. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it is interesting what Joni was saying. Uh, uh, it reminded me of the FATF uh, travel rules, right? Uh, and how when they bec- when they get implemented, that is essentially the whole purpose of, of tracking and monitoring. Uh, rather than, oh, yeah, we just want to okay. know and want to keep people safe. Um, so... It is going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, uh, and especially when it comes to CBDCs, you know, what happens to the market in general, and then how a CBDC is used really to, to track people. Uh, this is essentially a digital uh, dollar then in everyone's wallet, and then you know exactly where that is being spent and for what. Um, so that's a whole another discussion, but yeah. That's that's an interesting point because then we start talking about privacy, which is one thing. That's that's a whole uh, session, <laughs> Joe. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, look, I must say, I think the conclusions with respect to privacy will tend sort of tend to trend towards really dismal. It doesn't seem to be a right that is vigorously protected in the Western world, let alone authoritarian or totalitarian governments. No, I, I think. It actually has an inverse relationship with with technology, the way that we use technology. 
because yeah. of that that discussion we talked about like in order to transact there's a general premise that you you should know who's on the other end if you're able to hide it that's great but the default is that you should know who's on the other end yeah you're absolutely right i completely agree and if you think about it uh, this is getting a little bit philosophical here we're getting to the end so i feel like i'm straying into fair waters <laughs> one thing nation states have historically loved to do more so than anything else is to label name and document things that are in its areas they want to they want to label people like so think about it you need to give your nation your address you need to give them your license plates they want to know where things are they need to plot out the land they need to assign everyone with all these sort of documents and it's a very important principle that all nation states do right and i think that crypto probably enables a lot of this stuff so that's my worry of a dystopic world but we that's definitely another discussion i just had to blurt that out well, that's that's the downside of, of technology. It's it's exciting. It's um, you know we talk about innovation, and everything, but we all know it can be used um, for bad stuff, right? Like there's two colors of kryptonite, not just <laughs> not just the good one. There's also the bad one. Beautifully put. Well, I think um, we better start wrapping this up. Well, ten eight. Sorry, mate. Didn't mean to. Yeah, no. Uh, we're gonna wrap up. I mean, that was actually my last question, even though I have quite a few more, but. For another session, uh, Jamili, uh, and I wasn't there, uh, you know, in the earlier 15, in the beginning 15 minutes. But um, in terms of your, um, how do I say, uh, in terms of your experience in a, in a place like Dubai that is crypto friendly, do you seem to be getting a lot of requests uh, to get things done properly and in a legal manner, or are people still sort of taking um, a wild approach? Huh. That's a good question. I mean, I think, when, well, when people reach out to me with inquiries, their mind is already set that, you know, they, they want things in a, a structured way. Um, but I, I don't see the entire iceberg. Um, so it's, it's hard to say what percent is, is really looking at the regulations and trying to be compliant. Um, there certainly is a lot of activity here. So mm -hmm. I think that's something that we'll also see play out probably over the next year or so. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was a great session and uh, definitely a lot more that can be discussed. Thanks, Joni, as well. Mate, my pleasure, but the Cheers, real thanks brother. to goes to Jamilia. Thank you so much for coming, uh, gracing us with your time, knowledge, insight, giving us some optimism around some really challenging issues. And I've really enjoyed the discussion and I'm sure people have got a lot out of it. Hey, thanks for nerding out with me and appreciate your perspective and thanks for having me. Uh, anytime we'd love to do it again uh beautiful thank you everyone give jamilia a follow um best of luck with all your projects in web3 whether it be world of woman or and i don't i'm so bad at pronouncing things but bite bell right if i pronounce that okay that's right yep beautiful two for two. Uh, man this will never <laughs> this will never happen again i better put this down in the in the record books but thank you so much uh we really appreciate it and uh look forward to connecting in the future thanks thanks for having me take care everyone Everyone, give Jamilia a follow. Get over there. Have a, have a follow. Um, beautiful. Thank you so much. Now, everyone, get out of here. Have a great night. We appreciate you.